Well, I think we'll get started with the second part of our discussion on neuromuscular disorders. I'm here once again with uh, Dr. Jeff Dewey. Uh, Jeff, thanks for coming back. Yeah, I'm uh, surprised you had me back after last time, but thank you. Well, it, was, it did get a little messy at the end, but uh, we clipped off uh, that part of the recording. Oh, wonderful. So... Um, so, if you remember the last time we talked about uh, disorders of the motor neuron, uh, that is disorders of the anterior horn, the lower motor neuron, we talked about plexus disorders and uh, peripheral nerve disorders, and I thought we would continue our discussion with uh, commonly asked questions regarding neuromuscular junction disorders and then the vast area of myopathies, but hopefully we can divide that into things that are digestible and easy to review and prepare for at both certification and in-service exams. Perfect. And I'll, I'll start with a little disclaimer. Uh, for ease of simplification, a lot of these things will be stated as if they're hard facts, but of course there is critical heterogeneity in most of the myopathies, and so it's important to recognize that variations do exist. But we'll keep it simple for test purposes here. All right, let's start with the neuromuscular junction disorders. And I think uh, there, there are a number of neuromuscular junction disorders that really relate to uh, where in the neuromuscular junction uh, is affected. Uh, there are the congenital myasthenic syndromes. Uh, there is myasthenia gravis, and there is Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, and then I guess there are toxic syndromes of the neuromuscular junction disorder. So maybe we'll start with uh, with myasthenia gravis. So Jeff, do you want us to walk? Do you want to walk us through that disorder? Sure. I think it's important to remember that myasthenia is probably the prototypical antibody-mediated disorder. Uh, it's a disorder of neuromuscular transmission, and it's due to antibodies that are affecting the postsynaptic structures of the neuromuscular junction, and that's really important to remember. In particular, uh, the most commonly affected is the acetylcholine receptor, uh, with antibodies targeted towards that. Less commonly are antibodies targeted toward muscle-specific kinase, or MUSC, and this is a protein that binds acetylcholine receptors together and keeps them clustered uh, in the folds of the neuromuscular junction on the postsynaptic membrane. Uh, a fair proportion of patients actually don't have either membrane or either uh, antibody detectable in their serum, uh, but for, I think for the test purposes, you'll probably get an antibody positive case. Clinically, uh, you want to remember that these are patients with fatigable weakness, and ideally this weakness has some degree of fluctuation, typically worse in the evenings. Uh, there are two general forms. There's the ocular form, which affects uh, the muscles of the eyelids and extraocular muscles. And then anything else puts somebody in the generalized form, even if they also have ocular manifestations. Uh, a lot of patients will start as ocular only, but the vast majority will generalize into generalized myasthenia within the first two years after presentation. In terms of, um, in terms of the breakdown of clinical features, I'd, I'd often uh, heard that there are a couple of main phenotypes, uh, depending mm. on age and clinical expression, of, of myasthenia gravis. Can you speak to that? Uh, probably the ones you've heard are ocular, bulbar, and then some people who present with weakness all over or generalized. Uh, and that's typically describes their first presentation because a lot of these will evolve to different forms over time. So uh, tell me a little bit about the diagnostic evaluation. If you have somebody that is, uh, there is a clinical suspicion for myasthenia gravis, what, what are the types of diagnostic tests uh, uh, that can help confirm that this disorder? Myasthenia is great because there are some bedside maneuvers you can do that can actually uh, confirm a lot of your suspicions. So one commonly taught one is just to look for any fatigable weakness. So that includes uh, sustaining gaze upward or to the sides and looking for ptosis or diplopia that comes out over the course of a minute. 
You can also push repeatedly on some of the proximal muscles, so the neck flexors, the neck extensors, deltoids, hip flexors. Uh, one commonly tested maneuver is the ice pack test, which is a cousin of the rest test. Uh, both of those involve uh, trying to decrease acetylcholine uptake or breakdown uh, in the neuromuscular junction. So for the ice pack test, you examine a patient's ptosis when looking straight ahead. You put an ice pack on their eyes just for two to three minutes and take it off and see if that ptosis has transiently improved. This will be a short-lived effect, but it can be pretty dramatic. The rest test is similar. You have the patient close their eyes for a few minutes and see if the ptosis is better when they open them again. Uh, as far as things beyond exam maneuvers, we can do some other testing clinically. So one test that's really not used as much anymore, uh, but I think is still tested commonly, is the edrophonium or tensilon test, uh, with variations being the neostigmine or paridostigmine test. All of these involve administrating a acetylcholinesterase inhibitor which transiently increases the amount of acetylcholine in the neuromuscular junction. And you should see an improvement in symptoms like ptosis or diplopia or weakness during that test. And theoretically, because these are peripheral acetylcholine uh, inhibitors, there can be a cholinergic overload that can happen. And uh, although we don't use it uh, that much anymore, uh, typically we want to be monitoring somebody's uh, cardiac function uh, during the uh, edrophonium test uh, to make sure that they don't get uh, severe bradycardia or in some cases even asystole, which typically has to be treated for atropine. So I think sometimes this comes up on uh, exams or certainly has in the past that uh, if somebody becomes bradycardic uh, with the edrophonium test, the treatment is atropine. And practically, this is why we avoid these at this point. Uh, and uh, tell me about serological testing. So you can test for these antibodies. They're readily apparent in the serum in seropositive patients. Uh, you can look for acetylcholine blocking, binding, and modulating antibodies, all of which are variations of an acetylcholine antibody. And any of those being positive uh, is diagnostic of uh, ACHR uh, antibody myasthenia. You can also look for antibodies directed toward the musk protein, and both of these are readily available clinically. And uh, what about electrodiagnostic testing? I think this is very commonly tested. So there are two ways to look at this, and I think the, m the more tested one would be a, a repetitive nerve stimulation test. So this is done by uh, stimulating a motor nerve and recording the muscle potential and doing this repeatedly. So for the, the test for myasthenia, it's done 10 times at a slow rate, which is defined as two to five stims per second or hertz. And what you're looking for is a decrement in the amplitude of the motor potential. Uh, the, the theoretical cutoff is 10% over the first four impulses. And physiologically, that reflects a depletion of available acetylcholine at the presynaptic terminal uh, and it being ineffective over those pulses. And this, uh, it's important to remember that this is repetitive nerve stimulation at low frequency. Correct. Uh, yep. So typically somewhere in the range of a couple of hertz? Yeah, two to five. This electrodecremental response can be seen in any type of neuromuscular junction disorder, both presynaptic and postsynaptic. So uh, electrodiagnostically, sometimes uh, people are asked about how you would be able to determine a presynaptic versus a postsynaptic um, neuromuscular junction disorder, especially if there's an electrodecrement with the low frequency repetitive nerve stimulation study. Correct. And we'll, we'll cover this again in a moment, but the, the best way is then to do it at high frequency. And the typical rate is somewhere around 20 hertz, so much, much faster, over a few seconds. And you actually deliver 100 pulses during these tests. And what you're looking for there is an increment in amplitude by over 100%. 
and that tells you that it's a presynaptic disorder and we'll talk about why that is in a moment. And then can you tell me a little bit about single fiber EMG and how that can be useful in uh, disorders of neuromuscular junction? Yeah, so what single fiber EMG is looking, at, uh, is looking at essentially is what we call jitter, and that's the variability of time from ex excitation of the motor nerve to uh, response across the neuromuscular junction. In patients with a disorder of neuromuscular transmission, that variability will be increased, and jitter is a measure that captures that variability. And is that a sensitive finding or specific? Uh, it's, it's actually fairly sensitive and specific, but none, uh, just like any of these other tests, none of these are particularly specific to myasthenia gravis. And then uh, treatment, I think we could spend a lot of time talking about treatment, and there's both acute and chronic treatment, but can you walk us through some of the most important elements of treatment of myasthenia? Maybe we'll start with acutely sure, uh, and then move on to chronic treatment. Uh, so when you say acutely, you probably mean myasthenic crisis, which is really somebody with myasthenia who's gone into ventilatory failure. Uh, and those patients are easily identified both clinically, they're in respiratory distress, they have dysarthria, dysphagia, they may be drooling. Uh, you can measure their NIFs, their negative inspiratory force and vital capacities, and those are probably the most sensitive bedside tests for ventilatory failure. The one you don't want to measure is the uh, oxygen saturation. That'll be the last thing to go. But if those measures are concerning, then you want to treat them as if they're in a myasthenic crisis. Uh, the first key being to have a low threshold to intubate, manage your ABCs. But then these patients often require aggressive immune therapy in the form of IVIG or plasma exchange. And unlike chronic myasthenia, steroids can actually be detrimental in this acute phase, so we often avoid them. And what about chronic treatment of myasthenia. Uh, there must be an approach to this considering the variable expression of this disorder, as you've said before, extending from relatively minor uh, isolated ocular myasthenia to diffuse systemic myasthenia, either due to acetylcholine receptor antibodies or anti-mask antibodies. So the, the two arms of treatment are really symptomatic and disease modifying. So the symptomatic treatment is with a cholinesterase inhibitor. The most common used is pyridostigmine, and we like that because it's oral. It has a half-life of about six hours. It's much less likely to cause things like bradycardia, uh, and it's typically pretty well tolerated except for some cramping and sometimes hypersalivation or uh, excess secretory symptoms. Uh, it only treats symptoms. It does not modify the disease in any way, but it can be good for patients who have minor symptoms uh, or in patients with ocular disease where there really is a very low risk of myasthenic crisis. Immune uh, suppression is the disease-modifying treatment, the first line being corticosteroids. Often these are not tolerated well in the long term, and so we'll transition people to steroid-sparing agents such as azathioprine or uh, mycophenolate or other treatments like uh, rituximab. IVIG is sometimes used uh, in refractory cases. We often need to do regular plasma exchange, and now there are some new uh, FDA-approved therapies such as complement inhibitors. But the mechanism is all the same, which is chronic immunosuppression in some form. And tell me about the role of thymectomy in the treatment of myasthenia. So every patient with myasthenia should be evaluated for a thymoma, and that's best done with a CT of the chest. Uh, some practitioners will use an MRI. Uh, in anyone with a thymoma, it needs to come out, period, uh, regardless of their age. However, there is evidence that even if a, thym a thymoma is absent, uh, that in patients under 60, an empiric thymectomy may be beneficial. And the hypothesis is that there could be hyperplastic thymic, thymic tissue that's acting similarly to a thymoma, but is not radiographically detectable. And then something else that sometimes uh, comes up in exam and is useful clinically is sort of the categories of medications that could 
uh, worsen disorders of the neuromuscular junction or, uh, or uh, especially myasthenia. And ones that are on these lists include uh, antibiotics of the aminoglycoside variety, uh, of course, neuromuscular blocking agents, either the ones used for uh, anesthesia or uh, botulinum toxin mm. uh, uh, could be a disorder. And I guess beta blockers, again, because of their uh, potential effect. Anything that I would that uh, you would add to that list? Uh, the only other antibiotic I would add would be fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Perfect. Okay, that is something something that sometimes uh, people are asked on on tests is is about the types of medications that can worsen myasthenia. So to summarize, myasthenia gravis is a disorder of the postsynaptic portion of the neuromuscular junction, and particularly a disorder that causes dysfunction in postsynaptic acetylcholine receptors and their transmission and, and subsequent effect on the muscles. The most common antibodies involved are the acetylcholine receptor antibodies of various sorts and then the anti-muscle-specific -mus kinase, musk. There are a couple of different clinical presentations. There's primarily ocular myasthenia, which uh, typically is acetylcholine positive, uh, acetylcholine receptor positive and uh, tends to affect older people rather than younger people. And then there's the more diffuse or generalized myasthenia, which can, can affect people at any age, uh, both old and young. In terms of diagnosis, obviously recognition of the clinical syndrome and of fatigability, determination of serological status of the things we discussed, and then possibly bedside adjunct tests like the, if there's a prominent ptosis, then you can use the ice pack test uh, or the edrophonium test, which has largely fallen out of regular use. And then electrodiagnostically, you want to see a decrement on low-frequency repetitive nerve stimulation. And that's a decrease in the CMAP amplitude of, you said, about 20%, 10 to 20%. 10% uh, is the threshold. 10% <clears throat> uh, is the decrease. And then increased jitter on single-fiber EMG, uh, which suggests, again, dysfunction of neuromuscular junction transmission. Additional diagnostic test is to look for thymoma or thymic hyperplasia and treat accordingly. And then treatment can include cholinesterase inhibitors, immune modulators, including steroids and steroid sparing agents, thymectomy in some cases, uh, and then acutely you do have to recognize uh, the severe form. So have we, uh, have we covered that reasonably well? I think so. Great. Uh, let's move on to Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, uh, which, is which is uncommon, but probably the most common presynaptic uh, acquired disorder of neuromuscular junction transmission. Absolutely. So this is also antibody-mediated, and again, as you said, it's presynaptic as opposed to myasthenia gravis, and the target of the antibodies is the PQ-type voltage-gated calcium channel uh, in the presynaptic terminal. And the function of this channel is to initiate uh, the process that releases acetylcholine into the neuromuscular junction. The, clinically, this looks a little more uh, like a generalized myasthenic syndrome, and often the eye muscles are more spared than in patients with myasthenia. One thing that you'll see on bedside testing is that you can have brief facilitation through uh, sustained contraction of the muscle. So a patient may be weak, and then if they sustain contracting the muscle for about 10 seconds and you test them again, they may actually be stronger. Uh, one, one case this is very apparent is if you test their reflexes before and after, and you can elicit a reflex through tetanic contraction. This is the clinical equivalent of the uh, fast repetitive nerve stimulation. And basically what you're doing is by signaling the muscle to contract as fast as possible, you're overwhelming calcium clearance in the presynaptic terminal and leading to improved acetylcholine release. 
And I think this is uh, critically important. Uh, a couple of clinical clues that a neuromuscular junction disorder is LEMS include that facilitation with brief exercise, facilitation of reflexes. So patients, mm -hmm. as you said, may be areflexic or hyporeflexic, and then with brief exercise, you see emergence of the reflexes, and that's really a clue that there's a presynaptic neuromuscular junction disorder. And then prominently, there's involvement of the autonomic nervous system with Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, um, uh, presumably, again, related to uh, presynaptic uh, PQ calcium channels in, in autonomic neurons as well. In my reading, uh, a significant portion of cases of Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome are associated with small cell lung cancer, although it can occur sporadically or uh, with other types of cancers. Yep, and about 50% are associated with cancer. Uh, so we're usually very aggressive about a cancer workup, starting with the CT of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and often doing a PET scan if that's negative, as well as surveillance scans over the years, just because of the high suspicion you need to maintain for cancer. And again, uh, we've already talked a little bit about electrodiagnostic testing, uh, but uh, one thing maybe we haven't brought up is, is on uh, routine uh, nerve conduction studies, uh, there is a, a critically important difference uh, with, uh, with Lambert-Eaton syndrome than there is with Mycena gravis. Right, so often you'll see diffusely reduced CMAP or mo uh, motor action potential amplitudes uh, throughout the body, and you can actually see these improve with uh, facilitatory testing as well. And, and that facilitatory testing, you, in the EMG lab, you can do brief exercise. Yes, so, so have somebody contract the muscle for 10 seconds against resistance and test immediately afterward. And the increment that you see after either brief exercise or uh, repetitive, fast repetitive nerve stimulation is often significant, right? We're not talking tens of percentages here. It should be greater than 100% of the first stimulation. So that's quite a bit. And it's, it's a dramatic figure when you see it uh, in a test, you should recognize it immediately. Right. This is a, within a couple of stimulations, you see a huge increase in the CMAP amplitude from baseline. Yes. And, and that is a clue that this is a presynaptic neuromuscular junction disorder. And in terms of treatment, I guess, treatment of underlying cancer, if present, Always. Uh, immune modulating agents. And then uh, I guess uh, diaminopyridine is, is one treatment option, although this is not easily clinically available in all cases. No, there, there's, uh, there's always a place nearby that does it, no matter where you are, but it's usually hard to get and it's often compounded. But uh, it's usually very helpful, uh, unlike uh, cholinesterase inhibitors, which in cases of LEMS are often not very helpful or minimally helpful. Um, did you want to speak briefly about uh, the congenital myasthenic syndromes? Yeah, I think all you really need to know is it should be on your differential for the floppy baby. It's an diagnostically similar, so if you do an EMG and a repetitive nerve stim on the baby, uh, you certainly can see it. Unlike myasthenia gravis, it's not immune-mediated, uh, and it tends to be fairly fixed throughout life, uh, but it is responsive to cholinesterase inhibitor uh, management. Unfortunately, it can be fatal if severe, uh, and it should be distinguished from neonatal myasthenia, which you can see in cases of mothers who have myasthenia and have passed the antibody uh, in utero. This is a transient syndrome that lasts a couple of weeks while the antibodies are cleared by the infant. And my understanding is that congenital myasthenic syndromes can consist of uh, genetic disorders that affect components of the presynaptic uh, terminus and mm. components of the postsynaptic uh, pathway. And, and uh, again, you would see the similar patterns of pre- or postsynaptic dysfunction on electrodiagnostic testing and clinically. Uh, but, uh, but I think it's outside of the scope of our uh, discussion to go into that. And, and then uh, I want to briefly mention that um, another important Com uh, component of presynaptic dysfunction or cause of presynaptic dysfunction is botulinum toxin. Yes, and I think the thing to remember there is that affects the SNAP 
protein, which is one of the vesicle binding proteins at the presynaptic membrane. So SNAP25, is that right? Sounds right. Okay, well, we'll have to look that up later. But one of the SNAP proteins, which is involved in, as you said, binding of the presynaptic vesicle that carries uh, acetylcholine, uh, to, to the uh, synaptic uh, uh, junction, the neuromuscular junction, is, uh, is permanently inhibited by botulinum toxin. And that's why the effect of botulinum toxin uh, lasts for months. And uh, clinically, botulism, although extremely rare, uh, is going to be associated with prolonged symptoms and, and a prolonged period of recovery. And another thing that should be on your differential for the floppy baby, uh, the, the test buzzword there, of course, is the baby has been given honey or some other sort of uh, preserved food. So clinically important uh, differential for floppy baby, we've come up with a few of them, including infantile botulism, usually in, from ingestion of the toxin uh, from an infectious agent, uh, one of the congenital myasthenia syndromes, or as you said, congenital myasthenia from a, a myasthenic mother. Sorry, what was the term for that? Uh, neonatal myasthenia. Neos neonatal myasthenia. Yeah. And that, so that's directly related to the infant being exposed to the acetylcholine receptor antibody. And since we're on the topic, we may as well just get this out of the way. So the list is long. I was trying to make one before I came in here, but you mentioned a few of the important ones. Other things to consider would be congenital myopathies, which we'll talk about, and congenital muscular dystrophies, which are closely related, and we'll also talk about briefly. Metabolic disease, and then of course the non-purely neuromuscular syndrome, so mitochondrial diseases, uh, and things like hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or other neonatal traumas or birth injury. Perfect. All right, so we have reviewed uh, dis disorders of the neuromuscular junction, uh, and topics that would be commonly covered on an examination. Let's move on to the muscle, uh, and I thought one way we could divide this is by uh, etiological causes. Uh, so we could start with the inflammatory myopathies, move on to the uh, inherited myopathies, which can include metabolic and congenital myopathies, can include uh, channelopathies, and can include mitochondrial myopathies. Do you have anything you would add to that? Uh, probably, I think we should at the end just talk about secondary myopathies and toxic myopathies. Perfect. All right. So we're going to talk about inflammation. We're going to talk about genetic disorders of various types. Uh, and then we'll uh, talk about uh, secondary myopathies from some exposure. So let's start with the inflammatory myopathies. Uh, maybe an easy, uh, a nice way to ease in because these are the most common of the myopathies, probably, uh, and there's the most limited range of possible causes. Certainly. Uh, so, Jeff, as I, as I remember, there are three main inflammatory myopathies, or, or something like 2.5, because there's some <laughs> debate about one of them. Yes. Uh, so, there are th and, and really, it's three main categories. I think we're growing to recognize that these are probably all on a spectrum, or at least the first two that we're going to talk about are on a spectrum with each other. So, the ones to know would be uh, polymyositis, dermatomyositis, and then uh, inclusion body myositis, and we'll talk about those in turn. So let's start with uh, polymyositis and dermatomyositis. These are similar disorders. Uh, what are the ways that residents can distinguish these two disorders clinically and then also when uh, vignettes are shown up on certification or, or in-service exams? I think the uh, part dermato is really all you need to know uh, for those purposes, but we'll talk about polymyositis first because it's really the foundation of both uh, syndrome. So polymyositis is, I think at this point, agreed to be definitely a, a spectrum of inflammatory myopathies, but they tend to share some common features. So uh, again, it's inflammatory, it's antibody mediated, although we don't always know what the antibody is. Uh, in terms of the phenotype of these diseases, these are patients with 
sometimes muscle pain, but generally just insidiously onset uh, proximal muscle weakness. Uh, they can be following an infection or some sort of other insult. They could be associated with other autoimmune or inflammatory disease, but they can also present uh, sort of out of the blue in a way. The key feature is really symmetric proximal greater than distal weakness. Uh, you can also see some other systemic changes even in polymyositis, and the ones to worry about would be respiratory changes associated with interstitial lung disease. Uh, for test purposes, remember the antibody anti-JO1. That's the most common antibody that causes polymyositis with interstitial lung disease. Dermatomyositis is very similar in terms of the myopathic presentation, but it has a number of fairly uh, characteristic skin findings. The big ones to remember are the heliotrope rash, and that's named as such because of the purple shade, uh, like the heliotrope flower, and it develops around the eyes, almost like a pair of goggles. Uh, there's, there are other UV-sensitive rashes, typically above the shoulder, so there's the, the, sh the shawl rash, which tends to go around the top of the neck in a uh, sort of a V sign on the front of the chest. Uh, there are also a lot of hand findings, so Gottron's papules, which are nodules on the hands, uh, mechanics hands, this dry, cracked, ulcerated skin. And really anywhere on the body, but especially on the extensor surfaces, you can develop calcinosis cutis, which is a really a calcified deposition under the skin. That's very easily identified by a big ugly looking thing on top of a joint in terms of test pictures. And as I remember, uh, uh, calcinosis may be more common or more prominent in juvenile uh, dermatomyositis. That's probably uh, true, adult, yeah. adult onset. That's absolutely true. And, and dermatomyositis can also have an association with interstitial lung disease. Right. Uh, both of them, really the diagnostic workup is similar. So you want to do some serologic testing. There are antibody panels available. I think the individual antibodies are probably beyond the scope of the right exam. Uh, EMG testing, uh, the characteristic thing you'll see is spontaneous activity on a needle study. And this is a little bit uh, sort of counterintuitive at first because we often associate that with neurogenic disease. But in this case, it represents irritability of the muscles due to inflammation. And you'll see a myopathic recruitment pattern. So that's early involvement of all motor units, but with low amplitude, as opposed to a neurogenic when you have a limited involvement of motor units with a high amplitude. Yeah, and, and, and we've always summarized to our residents, uh, neuropathic motor units are big and long. Yes. Uh, and there's low recruitment. And myopathic motor units are short and low amplitude. Correct. Uh, short and small. Uh, and there's early recruitment. And that has to do with the patterns of denervation and reinnervation of motor units, uh, depending on whether the primary problem is in the muscle or in the nerve. Correct. And, and so once you've demonstrated a, a myositis, an EMG, then biopsy is really what uh, differentiates these two syndromes other than some of the clinical features. So the things to remember are for polymyositis, you see endomysial inflammation. So that's inflammation around the, the muscle cells themselves uh, and also some perivascular inflammation. In dermatomyositis, you see perimysial inflammation. So that's around groupings of muscle fibers. And you see this characteristic atrophy toward the edge of the perimysium. So it almost uh, looks like the the muscles are falling off uh, as you get towards the edges. And uh, treatment is immune modulation or immune suppression in yeah. most cases. Yep. Uh, and then also uh, treatment of underlying neoplasm if it's present. And in particularly dermatomyositis should make you worried about an associated neoplasm. Uh, shall we move on to inclusion by myositis? Sure. So this is, uh, it's called a myositis, but it behaves quite differently from polymyositis and dermatomyositis. And the, the one thing I think you have to remember is the characteristic involvement of 
the forearm flexor compartment, so in, when you're in the anatomic position, that's the medial aspect of the forearm, as well as the quadriceps. And these patients are often described as having had scoops taken out of their forearms and thighs. Uh, and that doesn't mean they don't later get other myopathic changes, but these are typically involved early on. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a picture of somebody's forearms that were scooped out in the middle, just because this is so pathognomonic for test purposes. Uh, the pathology is similarly pathognomonic. You actually see inclusion bodies within the muscle cell, and these appear on normal H&E staining to be almost empty, but on Gomori trichrome staining, they have this irregular, um, kind of lumpy-looking uh, material, and it's in a well-contained inclusion body in the middle of the muscle cell. So it's very hard to miss when you see it. And uh, and I, I understand that sometimes inclusions are looked at on uh, electron microscopy. So yes. uh, it's, it is a clue that if you're seeing electron microscopy of muscle fibers, they may be talking about inclusion biomyositis. Uh, in terms of um, treatment, my understanding is that the response to uh, uh, to immune suppressing agents uh, with inclusion biomyositis is, is not typically as good as it is for uh, dermato or, or polymyositis. No, in fact, it's quite poor. Uh, and this is one of the uh, arguments against this being considered uh, as a group with dermato and polymyositis. And I guess there's some emerging evidence to suggest maybe this is more of a degenerative disorder because the time course of dysfunction is often much longer, over months or even years, as opposed to often more subacute onset of dermato or polymyositis. Correct. And I, I, I think we should also mention that there are both sporadic and inherited forms. And so the fact that there's an inherited form also points towards some sort of degenerative disorder. So just to summarize, uh, dermato and polymyositis uh, can have common clinical presentation that is proximal weakness, pain, uh, and, uh, and elevated CK. Uh, and uh, the uh, distinction is often whether or not there are skin findings of the characteristic uh, uh, sort, as we mentioned, heliotope rash, Guttrans papules, extensor, finger, uh, extensor surfaces, subcutaneous calcifications in, in children. And, uh, and then pathologically, and as you said, uh, for uh, dermatomyositis, that perimesial neurodegeneration and inflammation is very useful, whereas it tends to be endomesial uh, in polymyositis. And then uh, in terms of inclusion biomyositis, we're looking at a characteristic pattern of weakness, which is the flexor surfaces of the forearms, which as you said, look scooped out. Uh, and then the quadriceps weakness. Uh, and again, it's a more slowly progressive process. Let's move on to the uh, metabolic myopathy. So do you have a, a, a quick and dirty way of uh, understanding sort of the main types of metabolic myopathies? Yeah, I think there are really two types to know. So one is disorders of carbohydrate metabolism and one is disorders of lipid metabolism. And within those, there are a lot of different diseases, but again, there are only a few you really need to master uh, as, a, as a general neurologist uh, and certainly for the purposes of these exams. So the disorders of carbohydrate metabolism are also known as the glycogenoses. This is because glycogen is stored in the muscle and is one of the main sources of glucose uh, for early muscle use. Uh, they're either disorders of synthesis or breakdown. And the ones we probably le all learned were types uh, 1 through 5. And for neurologic purposes, the ones you really need to know are types 5 and type 2. So type 5 is also known as Marcardal disease, or myophosphorylase deficiency. It's the most common of any of the carbohydrate-related uh, metabolic myopathies. And clinically, you'll see it as somebody who can't tolerate exercise. And these are fairly brief periods of exercise early on. Uh, they often will develop muscle pain and cramping with exercise and can go on to develop rhabdomyolysis and myoglobinuria very easily. 
Uh, I think another thing to know is that some patients, but not all, will describe what's known as a second wind phenomenon. So as they exercise for a bit, if they push through this cramping period, they're able to metabolize glucose from other sources of the body and absorb it through the bloodstream and then actually exercise better than they initially were. And the other type of, uh, of the uh, glycogen uh, disorders? So this is probably less frequent, but is type 2, and that's Pompe's disease or acid maltase deficiency. Uh, and this can mimic uh, numerous muscular dystrophies depending on the age of onset. Uh, and it's what makes it so difficult to diagnose. So there's an infantile form uh, which can present with a weak baby, but also uh, macroglossia and hepatomegaly are sort of the key differentiating features. There's a childhood form, which can be, for all intents and purposes, indistinguishable from Duchenne's or other muscular dystrophies, at least clinically. And then there's an adult form in which they develop this sort of slow, progressive weakness without any other systemic features, and you're only going to find it if you look for it. It's very nondescript. Both of these glycogenoses are treated uh, supportively. There's no disease-modifying therapy. All right, so the clue to something being a glycogen, uh, a glycogenosis is uh, the uh, exercise intolerance, and usually after a brief period of time. And again, the way to remember that, of course, is that uh, glycogen needs to be available within a very short period of time, uh, seconds or, or less than a minute from the onset of exercise. And these patients have a lot of rhabdomyolysis that is not easily explained by the level of exertion. And then uh, can we move on to the uh, disorders of lipid metabolism? Yeah, this is incredibly complex. Uh, all of these have in common uh, some dysfunction of fatty acid transport into the mitochondria or metabolism within the mitochondria. And again, the group of disorders is very diverse. I think there's only really one that you need to know for these purposes, and that's uh, CPT2 or carnitine palmitoyl transferase 2 deficiency. This is an autosomal recessive disorder and uh, presents actually, uh, can present similarly to one of the glycogenoses, but it's typically with more prolonged exertion as opposed to immediate sustained or immediate intense exertion. Uh, but these patients will also develop exercise-induced pain, weakness, cramping, and rhabdomyolysis. My understanding is that the onset of the exercise intolerance in those patients is a little longer, again, because you use lipid metabolism a little later. Yes, and if you're a fan of the uh, Lisa Sanders series uh, diagnosis, spoiler alert, uh, one of them has CPT2, uh, and you'll know it because she goes running in the desert for unknown reasons and after about 20 minutes begins to collapse and have severe cramping. I don't know but, why anybody would do that. Uh, uh, but uh, It makes for good TV. That's exactly <laughs> why they would do it. Excellent. So there's our plug for our sponsor. Yeah. Uh, so to summarize for the metabolic myopathies, again, exercise intolerance. And if it's uh, after a short period of time, we're thinking about a glycogenosis. And the two we probably have to remember are McArdle's disease, which is myelphosphorylase uh, deficiency, and, and possibly Pompe disease. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if there is exercise intolerance after a longer period of time, say several minutes or, or 20 minutes, then you might be thinking about uh, one of the disorders of lipid metabolism. And the most common of those you said was? Uh, CPT2 or carnitine palmitoyl transferase 2 deficiency. Perfect. How about we move on to the uh, muscular dystrophies? Uh, and I think this includes uh, disorders that are seen both in children and in adults. So Jeff, can you walk through the muscular dystrophies that residents need to know in clinical practice and for exams? And, uh, and I, it's a relatively short list of muscular dystrophies. It seems intimidating, but there's a relatively short list that residents need to know. Yeah, I think the one you're most likely to see would be Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Uh, and that's uh, fairly commonly tested because there's a lot about it that's very characteristic. So first thing to know that it's among the most tested muscular dystrophies, it's somewhat unique in that it's uh, 
uh, it's always X-linked recessive, so it's only going to be uh, truly present in boys. Uh, about two-thirds are hereditary, and these are due to mutations in the dystrophin gene. This is a really important structural protein at the sarcolemmal membrane that keeps acting connected to the membrane. Uh, another one-third of cases will be spontaneous, however, so there's not always a positive family history. The phenotype is fairly characteristic, although it does resemble a lot of muscular dystrophies. So the affected child will be uh, proximally weak. That usually results in a waddling gait or a wide-based gait. And of course, they show the characteristic Gower's maneuver, which is due to proximal hip weakness, such that they have to walk their body up their legs when attempting to stand from the floor without any furniture to hold on to. The other characteristic phenotypic feature is the calf hypertrophy, but it's really pseudo-hypertrophy because the muscles are gone, and this is a replacement with fatty and connective tissue in the calves. And uh, this is, as you said, an X-linked recessive uh, dystrophinopathy. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the uh, disorder relates to uh, dystrophin, a uh, deficiency in dystrophin, which is important for uh, muscle involvement. And what is, the, uh, what is the clinical course of Duchenne muscular dystrophy in the young boys? So for patients with Duchenne, they start to become, they'll usually meet a few early milestones, but around childhood, their walking becomes affected and they actually lose the ability to walk, usually when they're in the single digits of age, but certainly by their early teenage years. Uh, they become wheelchair bound and then there's a gradually progressive weakness that leads to a lot of other issues so they can have some respiratory failure and do require ventilatory support at times they have a lot of orthopedic issues including scoliosis and other uh, joint contractures uh, the other thing to note is that they're usually about a standard deviation low on IQ scales so there may be some developmental delay intellectually uh, that can be as severe as uh, mental retardation and uh, is there any treatment available for, for, muscu uh, for Duchenne muscular dystrophy? So there are a few treatments. Sort of the standard is to put patients on long-term steroids, and this is thought to decrease uh, muscle atrophy. There's a recently FDA-approved medication called Deflazacort, which was approved three years ago, and so I think it's testable at this point. And that's a steroid analog that has fewer side effects in terms of chronic steroid uh, side effects. Uh, there's also now FDA-approved gene therapy, and these are antisense oligonucleotides that uh, skip the mutation in dystrophin and result in a truncated and less functional but still present dystrophin protein. And then can you tell us a little bit about Buc uh, Becker muscular dystrophy, the other major dystro dystrophinopathy? So Becker is essentially a mild form of Duchenne's. Uh, there's a shorter uh, and less functional protein, dystrophin protein produced. Uh, it's really just a slower course. So these patients will often walk into adolescence before they lose their ability to walk. Uh, they generally have a shortened life expectancy, but will live much longer than patients with Duchenne's, uh, generally into mid and sometimes late adulthood. Uh, the thing to know about both diseases is actually the cause of death is often a sudden cardiac death. Uh, both Becker's and Duchenne's patients are susceptible to uh, arrhythmias and also congestive heart failure. So part of the monitoring of both diseases is a yearly cardiac workup, including EKG and echo. And in terms of muscle, muscle pathology, any clinical pearls uh, in muscle pathology with the dystrophinopathies? So standard staining is pretty nonspecific. You'll see a myopathic pattern. And that means that the muscle cells are variable sizes, but generally rounded in shape, and there's a lot of connective tissue between them. You'll often see sort of a swath of connective tissue running through the section where muscle has been entirely replaced. Maybe one fiber is gone. Uh, the thing that I think distinguishes these and is probably the most testable, testable is a dystrophin stain. So this actually shows the dystrophin protein at the border of the myocyte. Uh, and you can see, and they'll generally show you a normal 
stain, and then a patient with either Duchenne's or Becker's. Duchenne's, there'll be essentially no staining around these borders, and Becker's will be reduced or not as dark uh, as the, the normal slide. All right, so just to summarize, uh, the dystrophinopathies, which are excellent recessive, include Duchenne's, the more severe version, uh, characterized by severe muscle weakness starting in early childhood, uh, and, uh, and common features include pseudohypertrophy of the calves and this Gower's sign, the uh, uh, climbing up uh, by the legs with the arms uh, to get from a seated to standing position or a, a, a lying to standing position, and then the milder version, the Becker's mus muscular dystrophy, Treatment tends to be with corticosteroids, and as you said, deflazicort uh, is a treatment that is available uh, for this disorder. And important uh, muscle hist histopathology is that you will see uh, a myopathic process uh, with degeneration of muscle fibers, rounding of muscle fibers, and then, as you said, reduction or absence of dystrophin staining. So for for Duchenne's, there tends to be a complete absence of dystrophin staining, and for Becker's, you said a reduction uh, in dystrophin staining. And I'll just add, I think this is a little higher level, but the half of the sisters of boys with Duchenne's will be Duchenne carriers. And though they're often symptomatic, they can have highly elevated CKs. Uh, and interestingly, their pathology shows a mosaic dystrophin stain. So some cells will be dark, some cells will uh, be absent in terms of their dystrophin staining. And I just touched on one thing that I think is worth revisiting. So uh, in the lab work, uh, patients will have CKs in the tens of thousands. And if you see that on a test, that should definitely raise suspicion for Duchenne's. So very highly elevated CK in a child with weakness. Uh, you're suspicious about a dystrophinopathy, particularly with a young child, uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Uh, what are the other uh, myopathies or muscular dystrophies uh, that, uh, that residents should be aware of and that come up clinically, commonly enough, and on exams? Uh, one that's fairly common, although we don't talk about it very much, is fascio-scapulohumeral fascio muscular dystrophy. Uh, this is an autosomal dominant muscular dystrophy and is quite common behind Duchenne's. And this is also called FSH. FSH, yep, or FSHD. The interesting thing about this uh, disease is that it's, though it's autosomal dominant, it has very wide penetrance. So some patients, 30% about, will be unaware they even have it, uh, at least until mid-adulthood when symptoms become more severe. Uh, it, the name really says uh, the syndrome, so they have facial weakness, and this is generally muscles of facial expression as opposed to eye muscles. Uh, they have weakness of the scapular muscles, so you'll see a winged scapula on exam. They have weakness of the humeral muscles, so the biceps and triceps, and they're sometimes described as having Popeye arms because the upper arm is very thin and the lower arm is normal bulk. And actually, some of them have uh, perineal weakness as well. So some people will call this uh, fascio-scapulohumeral perineal dystrophy, and they'll develop dropped feet uh, over time. Occasionally, we'll also have abdominal weakness, and so they'll have a positive Bevor sign as well. So I think this is really important, as you said. Uh, if you get a story of bilateral scapular winging, uh, facial weakness and upper arm weakness, this uh, uh, weakness around the muscles of the, of the humerus, then you might want to think about uh, the autosomal dominant disorder, facio-scapulohumeral uh, muscular dystrophy, or FSH dystrophy, uh, and, uh, and it's just something to be aware of. Uh, treatment, as I understand, is, is mainly supportive. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Any other ones that we should talk about? A couple, I think, just to know a few buzzwords about. So uh, one is Emery-Dreyfus muscular dystrophy, and this is a mutation in the Emerin or lamin protein. Uh, this has uh, variable inheritance, and a lot of things are out of sight of scope, but I think the thing to know is these patients have fairly prominent uh, elbow and also ankle contractures, 
uh, but particularly the elbows. So you'll often see on tests a picture of someone who is a little bit decreased bulk in their arms but cannot straighten their elbows for the picture, and that's sort of a giveaway uh, in an adult. All right, so just important if you see contractures, particularly elbow contractures, think about Emery Dreyfus muscular dystrophy, and the two main mutations involved in that are emerin or lamin, as you said. And it's important to identify these patients because they can have uh, unheralded cardiac death in their 20s and 30s, so it's really important to identify them early. I just wanted to throw in, I think this comes up, uh, oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy, uh, a relatively uncommon, but uh, perhaps a little close to my heart because a little more common in French-Canadian population. And, and I think you had a mnemonic uh, to remember the, uh, the genetic cause of this disorder. So it's, it's a trinucleotide repeat disorder, but the affected protein is a, uh, the short version is poly-A. And so I always remember that uh, French-Canadians uh, say poly-A. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. This is, Do they? This I don't is a, know. This this is might, a, that might be a stereotype. This is a true stereotype of yeah, Canadians sorry. that we do say A. As, I, 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 I'll be able to handle it. Okay. Um, but, uh, and, and what's really important about that is uh, both eye movement abnormalities and, and pharyngeal weakness, again, uh, usually progressive and often later in life. So the other clinical clue around oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy is uh, this is later onset and may mimic uh, things like myasthenia uh, or, or could uh, mimic a, a motor neuron disease, other things that are acquired later in life. Uh, but the, the clue, of course, is that there's going to be no evidence of uh, motor neuron dysfunction and, and uh, EMG would show a myopathic process, and of course there'd be no evidence of a neuromuscular junction disorder as we talked about before. All right, so what's, what's next? Um, I just want to briefly mention limb girdle muscular dystrophy, so you've heard it. Uh, it essentially describes patients who are weak in the limb girdles. I think it can look a lot like uh, Duchenne's, but it's an it's a, uh, autosomal inherited disease. So if it's a, a young female who's uh, weak in the limb girdles, uh, that may suggest that this could be limb girdle muscular dystrophy. There are numerous subtypes that I think are beyond worth memorizing uh, for testing purposes. All right, so a young female with uh, a muscular dystrophy type of picture, especially proximal weakness, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you might think of one of the limb girdle muscular dystrophies, and as you said, they're autosomal rather than X-linked, which the dystrophinopathies are, uh, and they can be either autosomal dominant and recessive, as I understand. Yes. So, uh, we left one out, and that would be myotonic dystrophy, and this is actually probably higher yield than a couple of the ones we just talked about. So, myotonic dystrophy is also an autosomal dominant uh, disease. It can come on really any age in life, uh, from three years old to adulthood, but the defining feature is, of course, myotonia. So, myotonia is the inability to relax muscle, uh, and we often see this clinically as grip myotonia, so patients who will grip your hand or describe gripping a doorknob or some object and being unable to let go for a few seconds. These are not painful cramps, it's just an inability to relax the muscle. We can also see it in the eyelids on exam. If you have a patient squeeze their eyes tight, it might take a second or two to get their eyes open. Uh, what's notable about this is that there's a warm-up phenomenon. So if this is done a few times in a row, it becomes easier and easier for the patient to let go. Uh, and that will come up again when we discuss paramyotonia, which is the opposite phenomenon. Uh, so this can be diagnosed clinically by these features, but also the presence of myotonia on EMG, uh, which is described as a dive bomber sound. Uh, and I, I don't think we have sounds on any of the exams Can you yet, make the sound? <laughs> Not bad, right? Perfect. That yeah. sounds exactly like myotonia. <laughs> uh, all right. 
Uh, a couple of uh, common clinical uh, features, uh, sort of what, what is the uh, clinical vignette that you're going to see with somebody with myotonic dystrophy? So their, their complaint will probably be something to do with uh, problem relaxing muscles or proximal muscle weakness, but they have a very characteristic uh, facies. Uh, they have weakness around the mouth, uh, problems closing the mouth, and of often frontal balding in men uh, will be seen. So this, this characteristic uh, face of temporal scalloping, so a loss of the temporalis muscles, uh, weakness of the jaw, so, uh, so uh, the mouth often open, and as you said, they'll often show uh, men uh, with frontal balding, and that um, there are several other sort of non-muscular uh, components of myotonic dystrophy that are important to understand, too, in the clinical vignettes. Yeah, so one is that they tend to be a little bit cognitively impaired, uh, not significantly, but especially with type 1 myotonic dystrophy. Things also to be aware of is that they have a high propensity to develop cataracts, and these are characteristically called Christmas tree cataracts. So uh, I, don't, I doubt you'd ever see an image of this because it's, it's more of an ophthalmo ophthalmologic issue, but they're these sort of multicolored uh, cataracts when done under the proper exam lighting. Cardiac-wise, they tend to have conduction deficits and are at risk for arrhythmias, so they need uh, regular EKG monitoring. They can have some GI dysmotility, and they also have some uh, leukoencephalopathy on MRI scans. And uh, <clears throat> am I correct to say that there can be problems with uh, decreased uh, fertility? Uh, in yes, in, especially in the men. They're often infertile, and the women often have issues, uh, uterine issues, that make uh, bearing children difficult. And the, the genetic cause of uh, the myotonic dystrophies, as you said, there are a couple of main ones. Yeah, so type 1, which is the more common, is a trinucleotide repeat disorder. It's a CTG repeat in the DMPK gene. That's dystrophic myotonia protein kinase, I believe. Yeah. Um, the DM2, type 2, is uh, a tetranucleotide CCTG repeat. Uh, I doubt that will come up because it's a much less common disorder clinically. So... Uh, uh, and uh, we mentioned the EMG findings. What about the treatment of myotonic dystrophies? Uh, so generally, the myotonia is annoying but not distressing, and a lot of patients don't require treatment. If you wanted to treat them, mixilatine uh, is probably the safest option. We often don't use this unless things are uh, really bad because it does have some cardiac uh, side effects in terms of arrhythmias, and in patients who are prone to arrhythmias, that's obviously a dicey situation. So, and mixilatine is a sodium channel blocker Correct. or a sodium channel modulator. Um, so, so just to review, the myotonic dystrophies are uh, muscular dystrophy, typical, typically adult onset, um, uh, uh, or uh, and associated with uh, uh, diffuse muscle weakness, but prominently in the temporalis and jaw muscles, giving you a characterized uh, characteristic facial features. Uh, there are uh, there is the characteristic of myotonia, which is prolonged, sustained uh, muscle contraction uh, after activation that is uh, difficult to relax, and you can see that on examination. Uh, there is several other clinical features, uh, b uh, which include cardiac involvement, include cataracts, include decreased fertility, can include uh, cognitive issues and, and white matter changes on MRI. Any that I missed there? GI dysmotility, I mm -hmm. guess. Uh, the most common type is myotonic dystrophy type 1, or DM1, 
which is a trinucleotide repeat disorder uh, and, and the DMPK gene, which encodes the DMP pro, uh, protein, which is a phosphokinase, as you said. Uh, and treatment is largely supportive, but really important to recognize this disorder to provide supportive care and particularly to get people to cardiologists. This is a, a common disorder uh, to cause fatal arrhythmias, uh, if not. And uh, it is something that, that, uh, that residents will likely see at some point in their career. I don't think it's so uncommon that people won't see it. And especially now that uh, patients can have implantable defibrillators and things like that, they tend to live much longer lives and be followed chronically by neurologists. Great. So where are we going next? Do you, uh, do you want to talk about the other myotonias? Yeah, so I think this is a good time to talk about congenital myotonia, which is uh, definitely up there on your differential for the floppy baby, which we talked about earlier. And the key point about this is that the baby often uh, will maybe have a, a less useful EMG, but if you do a needle EMG on the mother, you will hear myotonia in the mother's muscles. And uh, the mom, uh, by definition, must have myotonic dystrophy in order to have a baby with congenital myotonia. And is that simply just an earlier onset of the myotonic dystrophy, or how no? That's that it's a good question. I, I don't have a good answer, only because I don't see it that often. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and what about uh, myotonia congenita and paramyotonia congenita, which fall into the category of the non-dystrophic? So these are not muscular dystrophies, but can produce myotonia. So uh, what are those disorders? So these patients, uh, particularly the myotonia congenita, will also complain of myotonic episodes clinically. However, they don't have dystrophic muscles and are not typically weak. And in fact, uh, in some cases are quite the opposite. They have very large bulky muscles. So there are two forms of myotonia congenita. One is the dominant form, that's Thompson's, uh, and one is the recessive form, and that's Becker's. Uh, essentially, clinically, they're very similar. Uh, Thompson's is just a little bit more benign. Uh, un they also will have the warm-up phenomenon that you see in uh, myotonic dystrophy. And again, that's that uh, improvement in myotonia as the muscle is continuously used. So one point to make about the myotonias is that they typically are channelopathies and the uh, exact channel involved uh, uh, depends, but they are uh, in many cases uh, in myotonic congenita often chloride channelopathies. So uh, what about paramyotonia congenita? So paramyotonia is named paramyotonia because it's a paradoxical myotonia. So these patients have myotonic episodes uh, and this is also an autosomal dominant disease, so you'll see a family history of this. But what makes them different is that their myotonia gets worse with repeated use. And so there's the opposite of a warm-up phenomenon. And the way you bring this out is you have a patient do a motion repeatedly and see if eventually they develop myotonia. Often you can see this in the eyelids. If they blink or squeeze their eyes repeatedly, after five, maybe more repetitions, it'll become difficult to open their eyes. And as I understand, uh, exposure to cold is, mm. is a, a, a characteristic a feature of paramyotonia that makes it worse. Uh, important to remember that paramyotonia is typically a sodium channelopathy. Uh, all of these sort of par uh, paroxysmal disorders typically are going to be channelopathies, uh, but it's paradoxical myotonia, which is that it gets worse with repeated exercise as compared to myotonia, which ten tends to get better. And then the other feature is worse with cold. Uh, how about the uh, other episodic disorders affecting muscles? So there are probably two other channelopathies that are worth knowing. Uh, so one would be hyperkalemic periodic paralysis, and of course its counterpart is hypokalemic periodic paralysis. And these are Sometimes a little tricky to keep separate in your mind because the names are so similar, but hyperkalemic uh, periodic paralysis is an autosomal dominant disorder. It's a sodium channelopathy. Uh, these are patients who develop, as the name says, periodic paralysis. And 
Clinically, these tend to be triggered by a potassium load or resting after exercise. And what distinguishes this diagnostically is they'll have an elevated serum potassium during the episode, which is where the name comes from. And these tend to be shorter than the episodes in hypokalemic periodic paralysis. So maybe on the order of one to two hours. Now, of course, there are exceptions, but they're generally fairly brief. Fortunately, in both of these, respiratory muscles are not usually affected. Uh, it's more extremity muscles, and so it can be a little bit bizarre for the patients. Hyperkalemic periodic paralysis, uh, the story is relatively shorter attacks, but they can be uh, from minutes up to a couple of hours. Uh, and it uh, is a sodium channelopathy, uh, typically. So it's usually related to uh, 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 genetic disorder in one of the sodium channels. And then hypokalemic periodic paralysis, also autosomal dominant. This is a disorder in calcium channels. Uh, and typically these episodes are longer on the order of hours and sometimes a residual weakness that lasts days. Uh, and these are precipitated uh, generally by a, a carbohydrate load is the distinguishing feature. And during these episodes, the serum potassium will be low as opposed to in hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. And I guess that makes sense that the serum potassium would be low if you give carbohydrates. That's going to cause an uh, increase in insulin, which is going to push the potassium uh, into the cells. And we remember uh, from our PGY1 year that uh, treating acute hyperkalemia, one of the treatments we would often give would be a, a load of insulin. There you go. Uh, so that's always how I remembered uh, the carbohydrate load and the hypokalemic periodic paralysis. And, and I guess the other thing to remember is the hypo has longer weakness, so yes. people are weaker longer. Probably not much more to be said about that. Oh, and you, as you said, a calcium channelopathy. All right. Uh, where are we going next, Jeff? Let's talk about a couple of congenital muscular dystrophies, only because they're uh, related to the adult onset muscular dystrophies or childhood onset. Uh, what really, the reason these are called congenital is often they're, they're present at birth or in early infancy. So these are infants who will be hypotonic or in better cases will uh, be born seemingly normal and then fail to meet very early motor milestones. These are all autosomal recessive and I think there are probably only three you need to know uh, for these purposes. So two of them are really cousins of each other which are Ulrich and Bethlehem congenital muscular dystrophies. The thing that distinguishes these patients clinically are they have uh, fairly severe proximal joint contractures, but distal joint hypermobility. Uh, and often uh, the, the giveaway is that they have a prominent calcaneus on both feet. Uh, and the reason they have all these uh, skeletal abnormalities is these are both mutations in the collagen 6A uh, protein. Uh, the Ulrich is the more severe form, and that's really what distinguishes the two because they're otherwise allelic to one another. All right, and uh, you said there was another one you wanted to talk one about? One I think that's just worth knowing because the name is muscle eye brain, congenital muscular dystrophy or muscle eye brain disease. Uh, this one's uh, an easy get because it'll be a child who's floppy, looks like they have muscular dystrophy, but also has uh, some sort of significant structural brain abnormality, uh, either uh, diffusely along the cortex or sometimes midline abnormalities, and also has uh, eye issues or progressive vision loss. And again, just to go back, I think you had a list for the causes of a floppy baby. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so maybe we can go back to that. I think this is a good time to review sort of your list of differential diagnoses for a hypotonic weak baby. So I think the things to think about would be congenital muscular dystrophies, congenital myopathies, congenital myasthenic syndrome, uh, certainly toxins if it's a baby, not when, immediately when they're born, but botulism is a common one that we'll see. And also think outside the neuromuscular system, so hypoxic ischemic injury or diffuse uh, brain abnormalities in these babies. Perfect. Uh, so I think next we're moving on to the... 
congenital myopathies, and I'm only going to talk about these briefly, there's a very blurry line between a congenital myopathy and a congenital muscular dystrophy. And that's not particularly important other than to know that, again, these can cause a floppy baby. Uh, and they're named for their pathologic features. So if you're uh, tested on one with a picture, look and see if the picture looks like what it sounds like. So for instance, central core myopathy has central cores in the muscle cells. Nemaline my rod myopathy shows rods under the muscle cell surface. Uh, and the thing to know about these also is that three or four of them uh, are associated with mutations in the RYR1 gene, the reanidine receptor 1 gene, which is associated with uh, an increased risk of malignant hyperthermia after anesthesia. So you sometimes will hear about somebody with a family history of, uh, of one of these congenital myopathies who uh, is at increased risk of malignant hyperthermia and the, the thing to be aware of is the RYR1 uh, genetic disorder. Correct. And I think we're going to move on to mitochondrial myopathies next. We're almost uh, on the home stretch here. So Excellent. Uh, a few mitochondrial syndromes to know. Uh, the thing they all have in common is that their, their presentation is diverse. They don't uh, always stick to their description, and they're all issues with production and metabolism of acetyl-CoA in the mitochondria, which of course uh, helps uh, fund oxidative metabolism uh, and ATP production. So the first one to know is uh, MERF, M-E-R-F-F, and this is myoclonic epilepsy with ragged red fibers. Uh, these patients will have myoclonus as well as myoclonic or generalized uh, epilepsy syndromes. They can also have uh, sensory neuronal deafness, they can have blindness, and they'll have some form of myopathy, progressive weakness, with a biopsy that shows ragged red fibers. And these are easily seen on Gomori trichrome, where they're red and ragged, uh, and that's really around the edges. It looks like someone has torn up around the edge of the muscle cell. So that's really important. If you do see a Gomori trichrome stain, uh, then you are going to be thinking about mitochondrial disorders, uh, and many of the mitochondrial disorders you can see ragged red fibers, including MRF. And just as an epilepsy comment, uh, MRF, uh, myoclonic epilepsy with ragged red fibers, is uh, on the differential diagnosis of the progressive myoclonic epilepsies, the PMEs, and there's a few others of those uh, that we, I think, will get into on a different podcast, but uh, but uh, MRF is, is on that list of obscure disorders that cause myoclonic epilepsy with progressive worsening. And another fairly obscure overlap disorder is MELAS. So that's myopathy, encephalopathy, serum, uh, lactate, or lactic acidosis, and stroke-like episodes. Uh, and these patients really have all of those features. Again, neuromuscularly, they have some sort of myopathy uh, with progressive, generally proximal weakness and ragged red fibers on their muscle biopsy, but then exhibit these other clinical signs as well. Uh, and it's important to note that these stroke-like episodes, as far as I know, do not generally cause actual ischemic strokes. And uh, this is important to remember in people presenting with recurrent uh, TIA or stroke-like symptoms in a relatively young person. It's uh, important to think about mitochondrial disorders. One more, uh, maybe more of a pure neuromuscular mitochondrial disorder is progressive external ophthalmoplegia, and that's exactly what it sounds like. These are adults who develop ptosis and or eye movement abnormalities uh, that are progressive and non-remitting, and there's not fluctuation uh, or any relief with ice pack testing and the things that would distinguish myasthenia gravis, and that's uh, probably the most confusing disorder that looks similar to this. But again, you'll, you'll get a history of a clearly progressive, non-fluctuating case that's not responsive to any of the standard treatments for myasthenia gravis. And then a related disorder uh, is Kern-Sayer syndrome, which is really progressive external ophthalmoplegia plus a pigmented retinopathy and cardiac conduction defects, and that's, that's really all that distinguishes the two. So just to summarize the mitochondrial myopathies, 
these are inherited disorders, and of course you inherit the vast majority of your mitochondria from your mother. So if you see that pattern of maternal inheritance of these disorders, you want to think about mitochondrial disorders. Uh, pathologically, they will be uh, what will be common between them, uh, or at least many of them, are uh, <coughs> abnormal uh, mitochondria around the edges of uh, muscle fibers on Gomori trichrome stain, those ragged red fibers. And what you'll also see if you see an electron microscopy uh, image is uh, mitochondria that look like they're in a parking lot or a barber pole arrangement. So it's these very well-organized stripes of stacked mitochondria uh, within the EM slide. And then uh, the, the disorders we need to know about are MRF, which is myoclonic epilepsy with ragged red fibers, known because of it being a progressive myoclonic epilepsy syndrome. Uh, MELAS, which is mitochondrial encephalomyopathy, I guess, or yeah. uh, uh, with lactic acidosis and stroke-like episodes. And then uh, progressive external ophthalmoplegia, uh, pretty self-explanatory, uh, and its cousin, Kern-Sayer syndrome. Um, so, uh, again, not things that are a huge part of examinations or clinical practice, but things to be aware of. And as I said, uh, common features would be these disorders with a few of these features with a prominent maternal inheritance pattern or, or the evidence of ragged red fibers on, on, um, on, uh, on pathology. And definitive diagnosis in all of these is genetic because they have a very similar biopsy or pathological characteristics. All right, we're, we're uh, I think, going to move to the secondary myopathies, which are probably far more common than most of the disorders we've talked about so far, uh, and things that our residents probably encounter daily or nearly daily. And for that reason, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time. I just want to put some uh, potential causes in your minds to look for in clinical histories, uh, both in the clinic and on exams. So really, really common uh, offenders are, of course, alcohol, alcoholic myopathy. You can also get alcoholic neuropathy. Uh, steroid myopathy is incredibly common, especially in patients with rheumatologic disease or other autoimmune disease who are on chronic mid or even low dose steroids at times. Uh, the thing to know about steroid myopathy is they have generally have a normal EMG. That's because it's a selective atrophy of type 2 fibers. Uh, critical illness myopathy is something we see very commonly and it's probably just overlaps with uh, what we often call deconditioning in a chronically hospitalized patient. Uh, but these are generally patients who are uh, in an ICU or intubated for at least some period of time. Uh, and then, of course, statin myopathy is one that's incredibly common uh, and can present for anywhere from myalgias to a necrotizing myopathy. Uh, and typically the treatment there is to, of course, stop the statin, but also uh, if it's uh, severe to treat with immunosuppression. I just want to throw out a couple of other things to at least have your radar up for. So uh, zidovudine, which we don't see very often but may still show up on tests, uh, is a is a chronic or a common myopathy offender. You can also experience myopathies from thyroid disease, hypo or hyperthyroid, uh, parathyroid disease. Uh, of course, diabetes can cause uh, myopathy, and then uh, be on the lookout for amyloid and untreated electrolyte abnormalities. And uh, so we have covered a lot. Uh, during this podcast, but I think this is incredibly high yield and may be worth a couple of listens, uh, especially if you're feeling uncomfortable with uh, disorders of the neuromuscular junction and muscle, which honestly, uh, this is something, uh, Jeff, I've been uh, reading textbooks and, and studying this stuff uh, for for almost 15 years, uh, and I still find it uh, really uh, discomforting, and it's been nice to review it with you, but uh, just a, a few highlights and high points. I think that residents really should understand 
The EMG features, and especially the repetitive nerve stimulation features of both presynaptic and postsynaptic disorders of neuromuscular junction, uh, that residents uh, should understand the clinical features of the common neuromuscular junction disorders, which are um, myasthenia gravis and Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, that uh, it's important to understand the mechanism of action of botulinum toxin and consider infantile botulism uh, in, in a floppy baby, especially if there's some story of honey or, or strange ingestion. And that the disorders of the muscle fall into a few different categories, uh, the inflammatory myopathies, the uh, muscular dystrophies, the congenital myopathies, uh, we need to think about the episodic disorders uh, like myotonia and periodic paralysis, and those are tends to be channelopathies, uh, mitochondrial myopathies and secondary myopathies. So, so it is possible to chunk these into groups as we've talked about um, and to consider those that are higher or lower yield depending on your clinical practice. But it is really important to be at least aware of these disorders and have some familiarity with their clinical presentation because if you don't know to think about these disorders, you're not going to diagnose them. Them. Agreed. Thank you all for your time. We'll see you for part three. Excellent. Thanks, Jeff.